Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. For those new to our show, we interview MLB players, coaches, and media. We pay close attention to two things in our company's wheelhouse, defensive excellence and how baseball analytics are used in the game. We have two great and very different guests for our season opening show. Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports and The Athletic does some previewing with us, but not your usual preview questions. And then I wanted to talk to someone from the defending champs. We got Braves first base coach Eric Young Sr. talking to us about coaching the outfield, coaching base running, and understanding what being a first base coach is all about. Enjoy. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic and Fox Sports joins us. For the season opening show, I wanted to do something with questions that are rooted in statistics, but don't necessarily need to have statistics-based answers. And Ken, I'll start with this. Can you give us a team in the National League and a team in the American League with the greatest amount of variance in what they could be this season in terms of like a team that could be a 71 team or a 91 team? Who do you like? Well, Mark, first of all, if your name was Brian Kenny, I would suspect that I was being set up. But because <laughs> you're a nice guy, I, I, I feel confident that even though my answers might not be entirely based on data and smartness, I will try my best here. So the greatest amount of variance. I would say Seattle in the American League. And the reason I say that is because of what they did last year. So far exceeding with their record, their run differential, and just my overall suspicion that they might not be quite as good as they think or that any of us think. Now, Julio Rodriguez might be a superstar, and that would eliminate everything I'm saying. But that's my feeling in the American League. National League, I'll go with Philly. I guess a popular choice would be San Francisco. Sort of for the same reasons, the expected regression, but I'm high on San Francisco still. I believe they will figure it out. Philly, on the other hand, because they have such potential on offense and such problematic defense, I can see them going either way. And <laughs> that's why I would say they're the team I'd say in the end with the greatest amount of variance. I think I'm with you on both of those. The team that I was going with in the AL, at least for now, I was thinking Detroit, just because of the, the Torkelson and Green and if Casey Myers in school become legit, kind of like those raised pitchers in the late 2000s, they could have something there. I agree with that. And that was a team I thought about. But I actually think they're going to be making progress of some sort. The question is how much. So you mentioned defensive play with regards to the Phillies. We're a podcast that focuses on the opposite of that defensive excellence. And two defense questions for you. The first one, Cardinals seem to be clear-cut best defensive team in baseball. Derek Gould just read a massive piece about this. Who's second and third best, though? That's a great question. And that's one that I really struggled with. I'm not so sure I have a solid answer here. But I'm going to go with Tampa Bay because their defense is always good. And the Dodgers, really for the same reason. I think these teams are going to put the right pieces in place, shift properly, do all the things that are necessary in the current game to have an excellent defense. They've been good defensive teams in the past. I just believe they will be again. Yeah, it feels like there's a school of managers or school of general managers like that Dave Roberts would never let his team be a bad defensive team. Craig Council would never let his team be a bad defensive team, that sort of thing. Tampa Bay's yes. management, they're going to have a situation where they're never going to have like three bad guys in the field. They might have one, but they're not going to have three. From teams to players, we know what defensive run save shows, but to you, who are the most impactful defensive players in the game right now? If he stays on the field, and we have to preface every conversation with that, with this particular player, Byron Buxton. Mm -hmm. And I looked up his DRS from last year. He had 10 
He's plus 10 in 509 innings. So if you extrapolate that out, yep. he's right there among the best in the game. The other person I would mention, the player I would mention, and this is difficult because I still, Mark, I'm not confident in the way we assess catchers defensively. But Jacob Stalling seems to be a guy that makes a difference. And the Marlins traded for him for that reason. He is not an offensive force by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a difference maker defensively. The other guy I thought about here was Correa because of the year he had last year, and he is an impact defender. Sure. And certainly someone like Matt Chapman, the health thing comes into consideration with him too. There are a few other players. I I think Buxton is the, if he's healthy, is the clear-cut answer to this, that he would, like, if he was healthy last year, he he could have had a potentially a 10-war season, and that would have been both an offensive and defensive sort of thing. Speaking of fielding and going opposite direction, the non-fielder, how's the universal DH going to impact the sport? And which uh, NL team is best equipped to put it to use? It's definitely going to impact the sport. And I do expect more offense. I do expect that National League teams in particular will benefit from this because pitchers hitting, I know there are people who like that. And I understand. And I certainly enjoyed Bumgarner and Granke and Wainwright, all those guys over the years. But there were enough pitchers who couldn't hit that, to me, it made this necessary. And also the risk of injury. We saw, I don't know, one or two guys every year have some kind of problem on the bases or in the box. So I'm happy it's done. I like the uniformity. As for teams that are best equipped, I'll start with the Mets, simply because they kept all their position players, and they have so many options in the DH spot. You look at J.D. Davis, Dominic Smith, Robinson Cano certainly is another one, and then they can rotate all their other players into that spot as well. And the other team would be the Phillies. They've loaded up with DHs, and (laughs) they have guys that will be impactful in that spot every day. Other than Nelson Cruz, are there any other situations where a team's basically going to just use like like lock in on one guy? It seems like the DH is going to be used in, in a lot of situations to rest guys. I agree. And that's why when everyone was talking about how this is going to be something that benefits the players from a pay standpoint, I wasn't so sure. There aren't that many pure DHs. What it is doing, though, is making some of those corner players, outfielders and infielders on the corners, more attractive to teams in free agency. But I don't know outside of Cruz if any one team will go strictly with a DH. J.D. Martinez, I guess, would be another one. One of my articles this offseason was about the idea that for someone like Pete Alonso, the DH potentially saves him from himself because he's mm-hmm. so all over the place in the field in terms of sliding, diving, jumping. And I'm curious if there are going to be other players for whom that's going to be a true kind of thing. I'll be curious to see how they're used. Yeah, I expect there will be, Mark, right? Because it's the, what we were just talking about. Teams wanting to put their best defenses on the field. And to do that, they have an option now to take a poor defensive player or below average one off the field. Yep. And baseball being a copycat sport, is there a current trend that a team successfully employed in 2021 that we're going to see a bunch of teams use in 2022? I don't know if this is a 2021 trend, but the way the Giants and Dodgers in particular build their 40-man rosters now and take such great care in that. That should be a trend that other teams follow. And frankly, that's the one big advantage the Giants and Dodgers have over the Padres. The Padres have a very top-heavy roster. It's lots of stars. But they don't have that 40-man depth that is so meaningful in today's game and will be especially meaningful 
this year with the shortened spring training, the likelihood of increased injuries. So I don't know if I'd call that a great trend in terms of, wow, this is something that knocks your eyes out, but it's something that teams are taking more care of right now than they were in the past. That's something that I was thinking about when I wrote that question, as a matter of fact, and those are the teams that I was thinking about just a tidbit. I was projecting innings for players throughout baseball yesterday, and when I got to the Giants in left field, it was like there were like 14 or 15 guys uh, to pick from. It's just so absurd. Is there a rookie that really excites you in a take-over-the-game-like-a-trout-soto kind of way? There are two, Bobby Witt Jr. and Julio Rodriguez. And I wrote a little bit today in my season preview about the AL Rookie of the Year race, which, of course, could have Torkelson, it could have Rushman, it could have Shane Boz. That group is really exciting to think about. But the most electric of those players, the way I see it, are Witt and Rodriguez. And Rodriguez has a personality that, frankly, we need more of. He is so effusive and seemingly so genuine, and people are going to love him. And he is absolutely one of the game's top prospects as well. Power and ability to hit contact. So it's all there for him and with two. He is an electric guy. He is someone who seems to have his head on straight, much like Rodriguez. And I don't know if we can ever expect anyone to take over the game like Trout, right? But these two guys have a chance to be two of the game's next biggest stars. Certainly would be cool to watch. And I know that people on the East Coast will probably say that they wish they could see more of Rodriguez. But, well, next year is going to be more balanced schedule. We might get a chance to see that. Is there a thing we're going to be talking about with pitching this season, whether it's dominant, sticky stuff, phenom, anything? (laughs) I hope it's not dominant, sticky stuff, because that should be (laughs) eradicated if they're doing what they intend to do. But I would simply say, not to harp on this, but injuries. And who can stay upright because of the shortened spring? Certain teams last year exhausted themselves going deep into the season. The Braves, the Dodgers were among them, of course. The Astros, how will those pitchers bounce back? So that, to me, is the thing that stands out most. As for a phenom, the kid Brash in Seattle had a huge spring and certainly seems to be someone with great potential. I'm looking forward to seeing him. For the injuries, certainly get in line behind Jacob deGrom. I view sleeper picks as people who have never gotten a pick for this for the for the award that we're talking about before. This is one of my favorite things to try and do every year. With that said, can you give us one sleeper MVP candidate and one sleeper Cy Young candidate? Mark, I had to do some research on this one. <laughs> and in fact, I've never thought of it that way. And it's a really cool way to think about these two awards in terms of sleepers. So I had to get to baseball reference last night and actually look up some of these players to make sure they hadn't gotten votes. The AL one for MVP is kind of easy because he just came in the league last year, Wander Franco. He is someone who is going to be in the MVP conversation. I don't believe he got votes last year. Yeah, that's so cheating, but sure. <laughs> okay. Well, <he> <laughs> no, you, you can go All with right. that. Go with that. Go with that. It's fine. <laughs> the NL one is a little bit cheating, and that would be Starling Marte. Okay. And Starling Marte, I don't know if he's going to have an MVP type year, but if he plays like he did last year, he should get votes. And he's someone that, I don't know if underrated is the right word, but he'll be appreciated more if he stays healthy this year than, of course, he was in Oakland. And then Cy Young, Luis Castillo is my sleeper there, and he could take the Rick Sutcliffe route and get traded in the middle of the year and still win a Cy Young as long as it's to a National League team. And the American League one, it's a little tougher, but I'll go with Luis Garcia of the Astros, who 
was good in the playoffs, was good all season, and has the ability to take another step forward. Nice. I floated this out on Twitter last night, got a few different things. My, I didn't do MVPs yet, but my size were Casey Mize and Trevor Rogers. I felt pretty good about both of those. Trevor uh, Rogers is good. Casey Mize is cheating to me. That's the same as Juan DeFranco. Fair. <laughs> fair. Agreed. All right. Got, we got two things left here. Are we going to see grumbling come October about an 80-win team making the playoffs as a sixth seed, or are we going to feel good because a team like the Mariners or the Blue Jays from last season got crowded out? This will depend on the individual fan's perspective. And I remember last September writing, hey, if we had expanded playoffs the way MLB wants them, 14 teams is what we were talking about then, here is who would be in. Everybody happy with this? And there were some not-so-great teams that would have gotten in. So the expanded playoffs, as it turns out, are going to be 12 teams. That's not as diluted as 14. I still expect, though, that there is going to be a team in there that maybe you think, eh, maybe they yep. shouldn't be a playoff team. But at the same time, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because MLB's position all along was, no, you're going to see teams try, more teams try, more teams feel like they got a chance. And ultimately, a team like the Blue Jays last year that looked like a playoff team at the end of the season will get rewarded. So I see it both ways. I would have been not so happy with 14, but understanding of it, I feel better about 12. And then to close, your World Series pick. This <laughs> World Series pick, if Fox knew I was advocating this, they'd probably fire me on the spot. <laughs> but I've got the Brewers over the Rays. Fair, but perfectly what reasonable. Call a nationally attractive team from a television standpoint, but they're right. both really good teams. Perfect. I think it's perfectly reasonable uh, prediction. Uh, Ken, <laughs> Ken Rosenthal, thank you for taking the time to join us. Glad you were able to think out some of these questions. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. Before we get to Eric Young, a heads up about something cool happening on the football side of our company. If you like the NFL Draft, go to nfldraft.sportsinfosolutions.com. We've got more than 350 scouting reports, stats, and much more to get you ready for the draft. Check it out, nfldraft.sportsinfosolutions.com. Eric Young, by the way, he played college football for Rutgers back in the day. Eric Young Sr. is the first base coach for the defending world champion Atlanta Braves and has been since 2018. He also coaches their outfielders. EY, welcome to Souvenir hey. City. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Sonny, what's up, man? Thanks for having me. <laughs> so a lot was made about how the Braves changed their infield positioning in the middle of last season and it paid huge dividends. But things changed a lot in the outfield, too. And I know that Duval and Rosario can hit, but how did things change defensively for you guys when you added them and their gloves? Well, I, I tell you, we we get data from upstairs and, and, and it's pretty accurate in the data that's being used in our in our in our organization. And so the guys, you know, were pretty much given they were given the wrecks by me from upstairs and we went by those wrecks, especially with the starter. However, with the relievers, based on their speed and, and how how hard they threw and how they were getting guys out, I was able to make the adjustments with the outfielders who stuck who stuck more with me and looking in at me and and in the in the actual placement I wanted them to be at. So, but it's always a collective group. We we talk about it. You know, I may have questions based on the picture. They would show me the data. I mean, it, it works very well in the system that we have here. So one of the things that Adam said when we talked to him last season was that he always likes to make sure that he's in position to make a throw. 
especially if there's a guy on base. So is there something that goes into positioning him and positioning Eddie specifically that you take into account? Maybe we get into the nitty gritty here when we're talking like things like with guys on base, you know, men on second where you're trying to cut off the run. Well, I tell you, Adam is definitely one of those guys that tends to come up a little bit more when there's a run on second base because he, he, his release point is very fast and accurate and his throws are accurate. So he's a type of guy, though, depending on the hitter, the count, we pretty much want him in his, in his position. The corners, he can, he can maybe gamble a little bit more, but the fact that he's in center field, we need Adam to be deep because we'd rather give up the single than give up the double or the triple. So, yeah, he has a tendency to come up, but you know what? That His ability and winning the gold glove from the corners is very evident, evident with him and, and, and the fact that he's able to read and adjust very well. So we also give him that, that latitude to, to play the game the way he, he sees it out there on the field. So, But playing center field, in which he's starting off this year in center field, we can't afford Adam cheating up a little bit just to throw a run out <laughs> So he will make adjustments. Rosario is the same way. A guy that has a pretty accurate arm and, and likes to throw out guys and they hunt guys. He's learning, you know, right field this year, especially with the dimensions at, at Truist Park. We have to make sure he's in the right position as far as how much coverage he's going to be at and where he's going to play more so in the gap compared to the line. It just, it just varies depending on who's pitching, of course. So that's something that I would definitely have to get with him a little bit more on when we actually get there to the field and to the stadium. So yeah, those guys are, are, are very good, very knowledgeable. I have a sense of direction. The, the challenge last year was uh, Jorge Soler, who did an outstanding job for us. And he's, he has a, a, the rep of not being a good defensive uh, player. And, that, and that, I guess that's based on the metrics. However, this guy came up with a great attitude, got into the system, got into the culture of our team very, very quickly and, and really did an outstanding job defensively for us. I do believe he only made one error. And the one error was that he was trying to throw out the pitcher at first base for hitting a single to him. <laughs> so that's the only error he made. But other than that, he did he did improve defensively. And of course, naturally you're gonna look at the coach, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give him all the credit for having the proper attitude and willingness to be better and wanting to be better and show the industry that he's better. How important was the outfield play to winning the World Series last year? I think it was very important. I mean, we had some some cases where, you know, we had the ricochet off the wall that Rosario threw a guy at second base. Who's telling with an offense like that? You get around on second base, anything can happen. Our guys just made the right play at the right time. There's more credit given to the infield, of course, well-deserved, because those guys had a lot of ball and a lot of more action than the outfielders. But we, we played as good as we could, and we made the plays when we were supposed to make them. The infield did an extraordinary job of making plays and making it happen each and every game. Fielding or or not, do you have, other than the final out, do you have a favorite moment from last year's run? That's a tough one. Yeah, of course, you always look at the final out. out you got 100, probably. I know, you know, but I, you know what? I have to go to the time I felt we were going to win no matter what. And that was when Soleil hit that, three, hit that home run. I think it was in the third inning. And see the charge that, well, I can I felt that that home run was like a, a dagger to the Houston Astros and their fans because it got quiet and it never had a chance to regain that enthusiasm we had before the game. And I think for our standpoint, our team just had this kind of the game. The game was over. And we had 
ace on the mound. Everything was going in our favor and at that particular point. I know it was only third or fourth, fifth inning, and you know the heart of a champion is is tough to to gauge, and, and you know that they're very, very, a very solid team over there. That anything happened, but we just felt like this was our game. This was and this was our season. What kind of influence does Ron Washington have on you? Oh, he has a great influence. What people don't realize, he gives you not only an education about the game, it just he gives you an education about everything that goes on within the game, outside the game, thoroughly given knowledge and, and, and information to me as a young, you know, young coach coming over to Atlanta when I first came. I, I remember him said, we have a team that likes to get after it, but they just need leadership meaning from the coaches, not, not from the management, from the coaches to lead the way. They're waiting for us to lead the way. And uh, I said, well, one thing I, I wanted to do was get them out of their comfort zone as far as the base running, outfield, outfield play, and base stealing. I said, because we had all young players, you know, Swanson, Albies, Kuna came up eventually, you know, they were young. So he, he just gave me that, that, that push. And every day, I don't know if you've been told or not, every day we together. And it's like we vibe off each other and the players know we vibe off each other. They know we get after it as coaches. We expect them to come to play each and every day. They expect to come each and every day. It's just such a great relationship between him. I really look at him as my mentor of really showing me the way as any other coach has ever done in my career thus far. And that's been tick. You've coached base running now for a long time, and last year's team wasn't necessarily known for its base running, but you have a couple of guys that are, I, I guess you would call it, you have a couple of guys that are base stealers, and then you have the guys that are like sneaky, and I think they're like the base borrowers. Freddie was <laughs> kind of like that. Dan's base yeah. kind of like that. How do you integrate all the different pieces when it comes to coaching base running? The base running is, 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 is first of all, I tell them it always starts with attitude. If your attitude is prepared to, to gain Every inch, every edge you can get on the base path is very important. And that's becoming knowledgeable of what's going on, the situation, where they're playing, that positioning, and everything like that. And when you talk about one of the best base runners in the game, which is surprising that my metrics were low, that Freddie Freeman was probably the, the smartest base runner I've ever been around. I mean, ever been around. And, and that compares him to someone like Larry Walker. He reminds me of Larry Walker, a guy that was on the path that knew exactly what was everything going on. Everything that was going on in the position the players were in, how many outs it was, his ability to get the third on the base hit, his ability to score from first base, you know, he knew exactly each and every time. And so when you get other guys in that same department, then you get a powerful base running team. So at times, you know, we had guys that didn't pay attention as well as you wanted them to, to, but it was something that we had to keep preaching and keep preaching. And that's, you know, make sure – uh, baseball 101, a coaching 101, never assume the player knows. Now, I, you are someone who it was very clear was stop watching everything. Where does data come into play and how do you know like what the different times mean? Explain it to someone who might not grasp it. Okay, so base stealers, like, based on the, on the time that I get from first base is on the pitcher. And if a pitcher is 1-3-5 or 1-3, or the only people that could possibly steal on that particular time is your base stealers. Now, guys that are capable of stealing a base every now and then with average and a little average, above average speed, they can maybe get you at one four, one four five off speed pitch in the dirt or something like that. So it's my job to precisely look at the data as well as 
the videotape uh, of these guys and see if there's any trends or, or things that I can pick up beforehand. Now, the times I get don't my times on the field are totally different because I see it live and I see it differently than what they may see upstairs. So, like I said, our group is good. They give us the data based on the average or or what they came up with. And then when I get into the gameplay, I'll say I got this and this is why I got it from my key. I don't know what your key was, but this is from my key. And it's what the guys were going on on the field. So were they close? Yeah, they were close. But sometimes that point second or something a little bit more, give them a little bit more time to steal that base. So we would take that chance. So our base still is the guys that were base stealers that can do it. And when I say base stealers, these are guys tie score in the seventh inning, 2-2, tie score in the eighth inning, 2-2. These guys, okay, we need you to steal this base right now. That was Acuna. That's Albies. So you've talked about data in a couple of different ways. I'm curious, is there something that you wish you had stat-wise that maybe you don't? Well, you know, you, you, you always can think about some stats if you see from another team or something like that. They use something differently. I've basically been introduced to it by the Atlanta Braves, being being a coach for the Atlanta Braves. So I don't know exactly what other teams may have, and they may have the edge of giving you something just a little different. But the information that I have, I feel very powerful and informative being at first base. And once I get confirmation, and I get a lot of confirmation on the field because it happens like that. So our, da- our data is pretty pretty accurate, pretty, pretty solid is what I want to say. And I definitely commend the guys upstairs especially when things are sent down to me and it actually happens to perfection. And then you add in my expertise as a, as a baseball player and a coach of seeing things from both light. I, I pick up little things. So you put it together. I feel very informative. And when I give that information to the players, now see, now that's the problem. When, when it's time to give it to the players, I have to decipher which is what, which are the most important points that right. I need to give them because I don't want them overthinking out there on the field because it's, it's, it's no and react when you get on the field. So you don't have time to be doing all that thinking. The thinking has been done in your preparation. Now it's just once you sit, react, once you see it. So I have to decipher what I'm going to give to the guys in the meetings each and every day. So your son, Eric Young Jr., is coaching first base for the Nats this season. If you were going to teach someone how to coach first base, what would you teach them? First of all, be a well-communicator. Be able to communicate with your players have a trust with them, have an understanding with them. Your commitment and your discipline and your direction should never be wavered. They should know exactly where you're coming from and how you want things done in a particular matter. So the test is always, I told him, I said, if your players were to, to ask, what did your coach expect you to do when you get on the base path? He should be able to tell them. And that's what I hope our guys, Ozzy, Riley, Dansby, these guys have been around, or Duvall, you know, have been around me, Akuna, what does EY expect? And so I told him that's the type of response you want. And that lets you know that you, your message is being clearly received by your players. Is he going to be a good first base coach? I hope so. I hope he's, <laughs> actually, I hope he's better than me. Whatever, how you grade, what's better, of course, because I always want my baby to be better. But I think he's going to. he's in the right situation with a young team. A team, I don't know their expectations within their walls, but outside, everybody's picked them to you know, struggle a little bit. But they have some players over there, and they put on their pants the same way we do. So we can't take them for granted. But I, I tell them, working with a young team, you can put your stamp on those guys from the beginning. And if, if you 
say it with conviction, you will get the positive response you want from these guys. So I think he got some guys over there that can run. He probably got overall more speed than at Washington than Atlanta Braves going into the season. So it's just a matter of he has to coach it and make sure it's well-disciplined and not making a lot of mistakes on the base pass. Last question. Last year, you would have yelled Souvenir City on 238 home runs during the regular <laughs> season. Is this team going to hit more than that? This team will hit more than that. Wow. Line, being stretched out the way it is, this lineup, remember, the first half, we had Ozuna out, then Okuna went out until we got the reinforcements. With a full year and the way our lineup is constructed, we we have one through nine, any guy can hit 25 or more home runs in this lineup. Now, that's not going to happen, of course, but we can definitely have at least five. I, I think we're going to surpass that number. This team can hit. Eric Young Sr., thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck this season. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. Before we go, you should know about two other podcasts that we do. Our football podcast, Off the Charts, looks at football through a scouting and analytic lens. And Playing in Space, our NBA podcast, carefully dissects that sport using the data we're collecting to form the basis of their analysis. Off the Charts and Playing in Space. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And this wraps up the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal, Eric Young Sr., and our producer, Justin Stein. We'll be back in two weeks. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 